At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about black lives. In the current mobilization, everyone can do something. That's what Mia Birdsong says. Her TED Talk has been viewed almost two million times, and now she's got a new book out. It's called How We Show Up, Reclaiming Family, Friendship, and Community. But first, it's time to talk about racism in the liberal democratic city of Minneapolis. And for that, we turn to Michelle Goodwin. She's Chancellor's Professor of Law at the University of California, Irvine. She's the founder and director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy and its Reproductive Justice Initiative. She's written all over the place, including for the New York Times, Politico, Salon, Ms. Magazine, and the LA Times. And she's got a new book out. It's called Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Michelle Goodwin, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me on your program. Well, you and I have at least three things in common. We're both on the faculty at UC Irvine. We're both on the board of the ACLU of Southern California. And most important, we've both lived in Minneapolis and St. Paul. I went to St. Paul Central High School. So did Philando Castile. And you taught at the University of Minnesota as a distinguished professor of law before coming to the UCI Law School. People think of Minneapolis as one of the most liberal cities in the country. It's, of course, represented in Congress by Ilhan Omar, an immigrant Muslim woman. City votes overwhelmingly Democratic. But we learned from the murder of George Floyd on Memorial Day that the police there are a big problem. You say you know the corner well where George Floyd was killed, Chicago and 38th. That corner of Chicago and 38th was the road so frequently that I traveled on the way to visiting my uncle, Charles Mays, who was a civil rights pioneer himself, served as a field director with the NAACP, was instrumental in helping to lower the voting age. And so as a person who was a civil libertarian himself and a civil rights advocate, that that would be the very corner, a corner that I frequented and in fact frequently drove by even recently as the executive the executor of his estate, uh, really hit me uh, in the gut in a particular way. But of course, it's not just the police in Minneapolis. You wrote recently that when you lived there, you often felt as if you were in a strange sociological experiment. Tell us about that. That's right. So, so I spent a number of years living in the Twin Cities. I moved there from Chicago, which is a dynamic environment. Uh, it is a place that also harbors segregation, but in a very different kind of way. There are communities where Black people have purposely aligned themselves, um, and a 
an area where the racial discourse is, is very dynamic and engaged and so forth. Not that Chicago uh, doesn't have its uh, racial tensions, which clearly it does. We can see that in police violence there, uh, histories of it. Um, but in Minneapolis, I had been told that it would be a cross between Chicago and Seattle. And for its white residents, it is that. I mean, it's a place where one can become lost in the beauty of the nature there. It's pristine in the arts and the theater and as well in the lovely restaurants. But the pervasiveness of racism is absolutely astonishing. And it was like being in a sociological experiment. And I could say that having, you know, been a person who, who studies sociology and is active in sociological organizations. And from the very beginning, whether it was home repair, uh, I was called the N-word by a young repair, repair person who was doing my floors, and in fact, loud enough that my husband could hear it through the receiver. We had to fire people. You know, a plumber came to the house, didn't believe that I was the owner, and then walked right past me looking for the owner of the house and told me that I could be an imposter as if I was a person breaking into my own home and he needed to find a real <laughs> owner. In that instance, uh, when I fired him, his boss called my husband and asked that my husband, who happens to be white, that he would be rehired. And my husband said, of course not, but just the gall of thinking that it could be two white guys that negotiate this past the racist, you know, plumber. And, and that wasn't, that wasn't it, you know, it was in virtually every aspect of life. And that was what made it so astonishing. And as if being in a sociological experiment, being stopped by the police after leaving yoga classes, um, you know, when going grocery shopping and not being served, when white people would come up right after me and be served. And, you know, and when I would, you know, tell managers and whatnot, they would say, oh, that's weird, rather than, well, that's racist and inappropriate. And, you know, I could tell you across myriad <laughs> aspects of shopping, uh, home repair, and even one area that really was astonishing, and it tells you so much about how racism cannot be papered over by class, and even within the context of the kind of um, people who are liberal. I would host events at my home for organizations like the ACLU and others, and frequently when people came to my home, I would be asked... <laughs> by the guest if I could introduce them to the other Michelle, right? The Michelle who actually owned the home. Oh, uh, no. Not the Michelle who was greeting them at the front door. Oh, you know, and so those are the kinds of experiences that, you know, it's not as if Black people don't talk about these. It's that in these times, they resonate with a greater clarity than in prior times when I know that I shared these comments with colleagues and others. Uh, but I don't know that they necessarily resonated in deep and meaningful ways as the conversations have turned today. Then there's the story of your daughter and the elite private school you put her in. Yes, you know, and schooling is always a challenge. You know, I worked in education before becoming a law professor, and I'm well aware of the implicit and explicit biases 
that attend educating uh, children, particularly children of color in the United States. There's a lot of work that has to be done. And in fact, what I began doing with my daughter early on was to put books together for her school because I realized that for so many teachers, the ways in which they've come to be informed about black children happens to be through stereotype and bias through horror stories that they might hear on the news and ignore the children right in front of them, not see them. And so I would prepare a book of, you know, here's my daughter, here's my daughter in ballet and rock climbing in mixed matched socks sitting by a pond, right, to humanize my child. And yes, there were experiences, experiences that, um, in fact, at the school when she first got there, she was told by an instructor that she must be in the wrong classroom because it was a class that was intended for smart people who were smart in math. And he said this in front of a white classmate who was her tour guide. And my daughter reminded him that on the chart that he had, her name was there, so it was the right classroom. And he said, well, you know, no, really, this is, re this is the top class. This is a class intended for the smart students. And he pivoted and then he asked, well, do you live in a house or an apartment? Now in New York City, this matters nothing because everybody lives in apartments. But as you know, uh, having lived in uh, Minnesota, when you're asking, do you live in a house or an apartment? It's basically, are you on welfare? Or do you live in a house that might be owned by your parents? You know, my daughter picked up on these cues and she told me about this experience and I went to the school. Unfortunately, the administration dealt with it fine, but the complications of schooling is that even when you try to find a school where the administration is good, where the administration will respond, that doesn't mean that your child won't experience certain things in the classroom or that your kid won't experience things with students or with parents. And, you know, no matter how much you search and find, you know, you look for the right place, the right combination. And ultimately, for us, it was looking at a place where at least the administration will respond <laughs> when those things happen, as opposed to those things happening and there being crickets, right? It's just no response. Or what did your child do to bring this onto herself? And so sadly, it was painful, you know, in our case. And I understand she left this elite private school for both her junior and senior years. Why was that? Yes. Our daughter gained fluency in Chinese. And so for her junior year, she had the opportunity to be in Beijing for her junior year, but she did not want to come back to Minneapolis. And at First, my intuition was that, of course, you come back, you finish, you're the top of your class, be valedictorian, get lots of awards and all of these things, and then go on to college as, as young people do. Yes. And really, it was, um, it was seeing the pain in my daughter's eyes and that calling up my own experiences. And I could really think, well, how fair was that? to for my daughter to continue to endure and experience what she had and so my daughter went to college early and did not come back for her senior year and i should say something else too because you know in the twin cities area there are sort of three top you know schools these three elite and then they're you know a couple of you know elite public schools and whatnot and i will tell you that i 
had conversations with and knew other black parents who had similar struggles, whose children were not at my daughter's school. Kids who otherwise would have been leaving high school, going straight on to college, but who had to take gap years, not because they needed to add to their credentials or other things, but because they had been so traumatized by their racialized experiences growing up and being in high school. I mean, really traumatic stories where the teachers were oblivious, where administrations didn't respond. And, you know, over and over again, I mean, in ways, again, that would make you think that you were in a sociological experiment. So how do we fix this? In your article in Ms. Magazine about this, you say, among other things, White Americans need to listen to their friends and co-workers who share their stories. That's what we're doing now, but that's not the only thing. It's a good start. What else? That's that's right. Um, that's, you know, I think it's really important to be informed about these histories as well and then to take action and not leave these matters simply to the people who report and share their stories. You know, what one finds with young people who experience racism in the classroom is that um, they're, they're left on their own. They're the, they're the only voice. No one else speaks up for them or with them. You have administrations that don't respond when teachers act in inappropriate ways. I mean, fortunately at my daughter's school, when we reported the math teacher, the school took action and that was great. How horrible if you report something like that and the teacher stays in place, no apology, nothing, right? And and no one's denying the experience, but that, you know, nothing else takes place. So action is really important. You know, and I know that there are some people who say, well, you know, in areas where there are fewer people of color, these are things that you just have to expect. I disagree with that. I completely disagree with that. I, you know, I, I don't think that one needs more Asian people, indigenous people, or black people in a particular community to be less racist and to be less uh, implicitly or explicitly biased. I don't think so. I mean, I think that we take people from the heart and we treat them as we would want to be treated ourselves. And then there's the the rest of the, the list of things we need. Obviously, well, in Minneapolis, they've decided to abolish the police force they have and replace it with something better. Um, they can get that through the legislature, right? So, you know, as we think about these broader matters for society, there are any number of things that we can be doing, right? We can, you know, move beyond just simply being allies to being advocates and actually doing the kind of uh, support work that we would want for ourselves and that we see that have benefited others in our society. When it comes to policing, we need to think about and talk about police unions. There is an abolition uh, movement afoot that recognizes that really we, what we should be looking towards are the appropriate people to respond to the instances that are needed. There are studies that actually show the majority of police work is actually not this kind of chase them down, point your gun and shoot at people. That's like 4% of the work overall. A lot of the other work is that which some people might find mundane, but is actually in, you know, that work that might be behind a desk or um, that work that might be involved in other ways of protecting and serving. But perhaps we need to think more critically 
about where and who responds to what instances. When there are instances that involve someone who's in a mental health crisis, we need people who are trained in mental health crises uh, to appropriately respond to those issues. And, you know, it is not to say that there aren't times in which there is the need for people who are adept at crisis management. But, you know, being adept at crisis management shouldn't mean that someone is then uh, bulleted, you know, ricocheted with bullets eight times while she's in bed asleep, as in the time of Breonna Taylor's tragic uh, death. Well, we've been talking to you mostly as a parent so far, but you're also, of course, a distinguished professor of law. And I do want to draw on your legal thinking just for a minute. Uh, This issue of tearing down and removing statues, honoring defenders of slavery and treason, especially in the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., House Speaker Nancy Pelosi ordered removing the statues of her predecessors who took up arms against the United States in the Civil War, starting, of course, with Robert E. Lee. We're told there are a total of 11 statues of supporters of treason and slavery in the Capitol's National Statuary Hall collection. But you think there's one more that should come down. Who's that? That's Justice Roger Otani, who was the Chief Justice uh, of the U.S. Supreme Court during the time in which uh, very important matters related to slavery were being debated before the court and decided before the court. One related to the Fugitive Slave Law and another related to um, the case of formerly enslaved or enslaved individuals who then move into free territories, a case in which most people in law all know the Dred Scott opinion and many say was one of the worst decided cases in U.S. history. Justice Taney came from a family uh, that was slaveholding. He had sympathies, very strong sympathies. In fact, probably chief sympathies, really, um, with the South. He did not recuse himself uh, from the court in cases that involved slavery, uh, despite his uh, history, and uh, did not seek to leave the court uh, as the Civil War was uh, amping up. The Dred Scott opinion is notorious. Justice Taney essentially said that uh, it was for Black people's benefit that they were enslaved and that the U.S. would never be a place for Black people to gain any type of citizenship and that uh, Black people were born into a position of servitude and that this was their natural place and should always be their natural place. Uh, prior to the Dred Scott opinion, he also uh, he also concurred quite explicitly in a case that involved fugitive uh, slave laws. Uh, in that case, we know that with the fugitive slave laws, it benefited and further aided slave owners in that they could hire these catchers, these bounty hunters, who would go into states where slavery was abolished, and they would, in fact, kidnap people who had never been enslaved, and they would bring them back south. There were very limited protections for Black people who found themselves in this you know, nightmare of a condition. And with Justice Taney's concurrence in a case that involved this very nature of thing, um, his concurrence made clear that, in fact, there should be 
no further protections for black people who found themselves in this uh, in these situations and that these laws were intended to protect the interest of slave owners uh, in the South. So Chief Justice Roger B. Tawney wrote the Dred Scott decision in 1857. It held that the rights in the Constitution would never include black people. It's time to remove his statue from the capital of the United States. Michelle Goodwin, her new book is Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Michelle, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me on your show, John. In the current mobilization around Black lives, everyone can do something. That's what Mia Birdsong says. She's a senior fellow of the Economic Security Project and an inaugural Ascend Fellow of the Aspen Institute. She's also founding co-director of Family Story, and she's widely known for her TED conversation with the founders of Black Lives Matter. And her TED Talk, The Story We Tell About Poverty Isn't True, has been viewed almost two million times. Now she's got a new book out. It's called How We Show Up, Reclaiming Family, Friendship, and Community. Last time we talked here, it was about her podcast for the nation. It's called More Than Enough. We reached her today at home in Oakland. Mia Birdsong, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Well, we're still thinking about Minneapolis dismanding its police department and cities from L.A. to New York cutting their police budget, things that were unimaginable just a couple of weeks ago. People are asking, what comes next? What will we have instead of the police we now have? You've written a lot about the resilience and creativity and capability we can find in low-income communities. What have you learned there about how to keep people safe without calling the cops? Well, I think one of the things that I'm reminded of in this moment is there's a way in which we have, we think of police and policing and the prison system as inevitable or normal. And I think part of what we have to understand is that human history has had, we've had lots of periods of time where there were not cops. So for the communities that I have been kind of collaborating with and learning from for the last 20 years and many of the communities and people who I talked to for the book, they're not folks who would call the cops. They're not calling the police when something happens because their experience historically with the police is when the police show up, they do not keep us safe. Um, They sometimes add to the harm, the violence that we're experiencing. So Communities have developed their own ways of addressing harm. And sometimes that includes creating systems of consequence for people who cause harm. Sometimes it's really just about making sure that the people who are experiencing harm stay safe. I mean, that really can look like a million different ways. I think part of what is important to understand is that when it's when there are these community-based practices of making sure that people stay safe in the face of harm, they're going to be reflective of the values and norms of the community. And that's really important. So that's like what I learned in terms of what it means to address harm when it occurs. And I will say for myself that, you know, as somebody whose entry point to social justice work was through abolition in 1998, when 
I have experienced or witnessed harm, my first response is not to think about calling the cops. It really is to rely on the relationships that I have. Sometimes that's my neighbors, if it's something that happens in my neighborhood, or it's just like my friends and family, if it's something that happens um, away from where I live. I think the other thing to understand is that, so that piece is really about addressing harm as it happens. And then there is a tremendous amount that we can do to prevent harm. We know what kinds of things actually keep us safe. People having their basic needs met, people having housing and food and access to education and access to healthcare. Those are the kinds of things that keep us safe. And so many municipalities are spending, you know, half of their budget on policing, which means that they're not actually investing in the kinds of things that keep us safe. So one of the, the, really important things I think for people to understand about the movement to defund police and ultimately the move to, the movement to abolish the prison industrial complex is that it is not just about the absence of something. It really is about the presence of the kinds of things that keep all of us safe. Well, we'd all like to be in the streets at the protest marches, but not all of us are young and strong and healthy. You're right that we can still do something. Please explain. Okay, so to be clear, I'm young and strong and healthy. Well, young, I think that I'm young. Um, and I am not in the streets. <laughs> that is not my jam. That's not what I'm about. But there are some, I mean, there are very practical things that I think people can be doing. People who are, who are marching are putting themselves at risk. And there's a way in which we need to actually be thinking about how we keep them safe. So people who are protesting actually need safety buddies who are people who are at home and are making sure that they're keeping track of their, their people who are in the streets. So that includes, like people can turn on the, the tracking on their phone and, the, and their safety buddy can keep track of them, or they can just like text them when they get home to make sure that they get home, or they're the phone call they make, right? If they get arrested and their safety buddy like is the person who's gonna make sure that they get bail or they get a lawyer or whatever, that they get their medication, like those kinds of things. So that's like in a very minute practical way. But the fact is that protests are, a very specific tactic to raise awareness, to express all of the emotion behind this recent cycle of white violence. But it's also, it's just one of the tactics, right? We need like long-term strategy. We need people talking to their elected officials and we need people thinking about like what legislation needs to look like. We need people making clear to our leadership that the actions that people in the street are taking are things that we support. So that leaders can't just be like, oh, it's just like this like small percentage of people who are taking to the streets. Everybody else who's staying home doesn't care or isn't interested. They, they need to know that all of us are behind the protesters and that the uprising, we see it as a righteous thing. And it's something that we want. We want the same kind of change that they do. So much of figuring out what to do, I think is not, shouldn't be an intellectual exercise we participate in by ourselves, but it actually should be something that we're talking to our friends and family about so that we're taking collective action. We're not taking individual action. You open your new book, How We Show Up, with a quotation from James Baldwin. Here it is. The place in which I'll fit will not exist until I make it, close quote. That's that's amazing. What does it mean to you? Well, for me, that means that the country in which, or the world in which I would experience liberation as a Black woman, I know of no, no time that that has existed. And I'm not just like, oh, let me just lay down and die or go to another planet <laughs> or whatever. Like, I feel like it's not going to happen 
unless I participate in its manifestation. And for me, that means everything from political action, you know, being parts of organizations, working to change um, policies and practices. It means thinking about the kind of culture we live in and how I'm contributing to that. But it also means like, what's the work that I need to do with and in community with my loved ones so that my experience of living in the world is less impacted by white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism. You say that we need to campaign for defunding and abolishing the police, but you also say defunding and abolishing the police is not the answer. That's pretty striking. What do you mean? Well, it's not the only answer, right? That is, that is absolutely a piece of the puzzle, but the fact is that certainly in Black communities, like our experiences of violence aren't just from the police. People experience interpersonal violence. They're experiencing harm and violence, all of us, right? The harm and violence we experience is actually usually with people that we know. So ending state violence isn't actually going to address all of that. There's a lot that, that the practice of transformative justice has to teach us about how we address harm. Part of why the, the prison system and um, policing doesn't work is not just because of the violence that occurs when the police are interacting with, like come to a situation, but the act of locking somebody up is violence. Taking somebody out of their community is violence. So even when people are causing harm, our approach to addressing that harm is violent. And we're not going to actually decrease violence in our world if our response to violence is more violence. I mean, this is some stuff I feel like you learn in kindergarten, right? Like if somebody hits you, right? Hitting them back is just going to escalate things. Like that's some basic stuff that, that children know. Yet we have an entire well-funded system that is built on revenge, that's built on punishment. And if we actually want to decrease violence, we need to be working with the people who experience it or experience it and survive it to repair, to make sure that they're safe, to help them heal from whatever trauma they experience. But we also need to be working with perpetrators because we can't throw people away, right? We don't lock, we locking them up and, and like hoping that the prison somehow is just going to like solve the problem is not going to work because they're going to come out. And those folks need to also go through their own kind of healing. They need to go through the healing of accountability. They need to go through the healing of self-reflection and the healing of repair. And unless we're willing to do that work, we're going to kind of continue to have this like snowballing, growing, violent system that ultimately doesn't do anything good for any of us. Well, like everybody else with a book coming out now, you wrote yours before the coronavirus and the stay-at-home orders. But there's a lot here that's relevant. And I know you've thought a lot about the challenges that come from the, the physical distancing that we're all subject to now. Yes. I will say it is very strange to have a book come out right now, but I'm also grateful that I didn't write about, you know, like houseplants. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so... The book is really about like where I found and learned from people who were creating family and friendship and community in ways that are expansive and inclusive, deeply caring and loving and just liberatory. And a through line in the book that I think is really relevant for us right now is Americans are allergic to asking for help. We see asking for help, like not knowing how to do something or not being able to do something as a kind of failure or as a kind of weakness. Because, you know, we have this idea that we're meant to be super independent um, and we very much value that. When in fact we are deeply interdependent 
And what I found, what I learned from folks is not only do we need to get better at asking for and receiving help when we need something, but we actually need to be thinking about support as something that brings ease to our lives. So for example, I have a friend who kind of when shelter in place started, she would text me and a couple of other folks when she was going to the grocery store to ask if we needed anything um, or we wanted her to pick up anything. I thought that was super generous and I was very hesitant to say yes, because I know what a pain in the butt it is to go to the grocery store right now. And, you know, and I'm like, I can go to the grocery store myself. But part of what I learned from the folks in my book that I applied to myself in this moment was that she knows I can go to the grocery store myself. She is trying to offer something to create some ease in my life. And every time she's done it, which has like been, you know, half a dozen times since this all started, um, I was able to say, yes, like if she, I'm out of salt, right? I can't cook with no salt. So her bringing me salt meant that I didn't have to grocery, I didn't have to go grocery shopping for like another week. Um, she brought coffee one time, she brought oats. Like there are these things that I would just be like, yes, I need this one or two things. And her bringing it brought ease to my life and meant that I didn't have to go grocery shopping um, for a while. And in addition to what it did for me, I also was very clear as I would wave to her through the window as she was dropping things off on my porch, that it actually was like a gift to her to be able to be in my life in this way that she knew was supportive. So as we are all sitting here sheltering in place, um, and as we, especially as some of us um, are venturing out more and there are other folks who cannot do that, we need to really lean into our interdependence. We need to be thinking about what can I offer folks? What can I specifically offer folks in my life that would bring ease to them? And then, you know, for those of us who are being on the receiving end of that, we really need to just accept it and recognize that it's not that it just does something um, beneficial for us, but it actually does something for the person who's supporting us. Mia Birdsong, her new book is called How We Show Up, Reclaiming Family, Friendship, and Community. Mia, thank you for all your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe online to our print and digital magazine at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe with this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners. You can get digital access to all our articles for less than $1.50 a month. Or you can have our print magazine delivered to you for just $0.60 cents an issue. That's at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe, one word. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.